On a mountaintop high above a large city stands the headquarters of a man devoted to the cause of freedom and justice. A war hero who has never stopped fighting against his country's enemies. A private citizen who is dedicating his life to the struggle against evil men everywhere. Captain Midnight. Hi, I'm Theo Finnegan from the English Department at Vancouver Island University. Welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. We introduce you to the people and passions of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at VIU and share stories about events and projects happening on campus. Since 2009, the Faculty of Arts and Humanities has been presenting The Colloquium, a series of lectures that brings our faculty's practices and research to the public. Our next presentation will be on Friday, January 24th, when Catherine Rollwagon and Cheryl Warsh from VIU's History Department present Justice Through Strength and Courage, Television and North American Cold War Childhoods in the 1950s. Today I sit down with Catherine and Cheryl to talk about how, at the height of the baby boom, action-packed television entertained many children, while also serving as a powerful Cold War propaganda tool. Hi Cheryl and Catherine, thanks for joining me. Hi Theo. Hi, it's a pleasure. I wanted to start by asking, what is Captain Midnight? Because I've never heard of it, and it's the title makes me want to watch it. It sounds really cool. So can you tell me a bit about what Captain Midnight is? Captain Midnight was originally a radio program for children in the 1930s, I believe. It started in 40s. And then after the war, it moved on to uh, TV to be an action show for children, very heavily influenced and directed by uh, Cold War militarism and uh, concerns and anxieties. Mm-hmm. And it, it aired uh, it aired on radio um, and so you can imagine the old radio dramas with all the special side effects. Um, and then when it went to television, um, it was only on television um, or it was only produced with new episodes for I think uh, two or three seasons 1954 to 1956 and so it's pretty early in television and then in the 1960s it comes back in syndication and uh, I think this is one of the reasons why people maybe haven't heard of it is that it was renamed um, Jet Jackson (laughs) and they went back and they actually pretty poorly dubbed all of the old episodes so it looks like uh, what you hear is Jet Jackson but what the lips are saying is Captain Midnight. It's wow. pretty, yeah. That sounds amazing. Captain Midnight from headquarters. Attention, members of the secret squadron. This is important. Keep yourself in top condition. Remember, to do your best, you've got to be at your best. Because someday you may be called upon. One thing that interests me as, as um, a researcher is the Cold War in, in, in relation to literature and culture. But in, in doing a bit of research in the last few years, I kind of was struck by how many texts there are in in particularly American culture but also more broadly maybe North American culture that are Cold War related so sort of period pieces uh, television shows like um, there's one called The Americans which was about Soviet spies in the 80s embedded in in America Mm -hmm. Um, so is there something about the Cold War that seems really kind of attuned to our time now or is it just that We've had a bit of time since it finished and we can kind of process it and now we're kind of producing fiction and TV and movies about it. 
I think what the reason that it's so powerful, the Cold War, is that when we had the first explosion of the atomic bomb, that really set the stage for the modern planet and how we have how we have survived and lived our lives and continued um, with always the ever-present threat that somebody could blow us up. Um, and I think that really had uh, a big impact in terms of all avenues of culture, not just politics. The idea of, of superpowers on, on planet Earth um, was really culturally powerful in the 1950s. And I think that... Um, Despite this, this sense that the when the Cold War ended um, in the early 1990s that, that we wouldn't have that anymore, that certainly hasn't been the case, right? So I think it is it does resonate with us today because we do, even though we don't have the Soviet Union anymore, we still uh, tend to think of, of Russia as a potential superpower uh, and now China as well um, in different ways, right? In more, in, you know, more... Um, cyber security type ways in many ways with the election meddling and um, Huawei and all this stuff. But I think that that still resonates with people. And so looking back at the 1950s and how that shaped North American culture in particular is is a pretty interesting question. Yeah. How did you more generally get into history in the first place as, as academics, as scholars? What, what drew you to that field in general? Well, many, many moons ago, uh, <laughs> when I was in elementary school, like I was thinking back on this, um, I did a project on the Greek gods, and it wasn't even for credit. I just had this love of it and wanted to do it and, and presented it to the teacher who was shocked that I did it for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> so I had this innate love of history way back. And uh, when I went to Western... Um, I was really interested in the Victorian period, and I was going to be doing a, um, a double major in English and history, but it seemed too hard, so I just stuck to the history part. So, as a, as a young child, did that come from your parents? Like, were you sort of encouraged to read about, say, the Greek gods, or...? I always, my parents have had a very strong sense of history in um, the sense that we grew up in a very historically significant time and place. I'm from Montreal, and I was there during the, I grew up during the uh, October crisis when there were troops coming into the city. Uh, and I recall that my father drove us all around Montreal looking for the troops, just in the sense that this was a very historically significant time and we should remember it. Mm. Hmm. Really interesting. Hmm. Catherine. One of my earliest um, encounters with history was, again, in, in kind of middle school, in grade six or grade seven, when we read Barbara Smucker's Underground to Canada, and, um, and I learned about, about slavery in American history, and I was really kind of fascinated um, with it, and that fascination with, with slavery, with the Underground Railroad, with kind of, I guess, social justice causes for for you know broadly speaking um led me kind of through young adult historical fiction into history um another series of books that really influenced me um uh, her name's going to escape me now 
she wrote uh, a series of books about young people engaged in um, the resistance during the Second World War. Carol Mattis, that's her name. Carol Mattis, she wrote Lisa and Jesper and Daniel's story. And these were really engaging stories about young people who were, you know, in Copenhagen when the Nazis were occupying Denmark. And... Um, yeah, and where, you know, Daniel was, his family was uh, involved and, and uh, impacted by the, the Holocaust. So these stories really engaged me in, in wanting to do more history. Um, and then in university, I just found that every time someone asked me a question, I would always look for the answer in a historical way. <laughs> it took me a while to realize that I was doing that, but I was in a multidisciplinary kind of program. And... Um, we were given lists of essay topics every two weeks, and I was always drawn to the, the the topics on that list or the questions that were historical. How did this change over time? What were the, you know, the factors that influenced this particular decision and all that? So that was, I think, where it came from. Yeah. So you both work and, and teach at VIU. I wondered if you could speak a little bit to what do you what do you love about teaching here? What what are some of the the positives about working at VIU in particular? Well, I've been here. Uh, it's now my twenty fifth year, and the most exciting thing is how it has changed completely from Little Malice being a college uh, to the institution that it is now. Um, but what I always enjoyed was that. There was a very egalitarian collegial sense to it. Uh, if you had a, a huge ego, it's better not to work here. Um, and then the more I go to conferences and meet people in other places, all I seem to do is brag about where I work and the fact that I'm in Vancouver Island and you might be in somewhere that's bigger, but I have palm trees in my backyard. You know? <laughs> Uh, and the school is, uh, the students are, are very well engaged and they are in your office and they're chatting with you and you are feeling that you're part of a big active unit and uh, it's very enjoyable. And I also work with some really cool colleagues and that, that helps a lot. Catherine, what about you? Um, yeah. Well, I think I think the small class sizes are really... I mean, in history, we teach at most 34 students at a time. And so we get to experiment a lot with different ways of teaching history, um, bring in a lot of primary source documents, um, do, the, do the lecture, but also do a lot of activities that would be more challenging in a bigger classroom. Yeah. And give those students a lot of opportunities research-wise to, to do research with, uh, with some of us if we have research projects. And we had a student, um, two students who helped us uh, in the early um, conceptual stage of, of looking at children's television and Captain Midnight. So um, those types of opportunities, I think, are, are more, um, come along more often, perhaps, in a department that's not as large. Mm. Yeah. Um, it, the, so this presentation is, is um, you're both giving it, uh, and I know that you've, you've worked together in the past yeah can you speak a bit to as some, someone from my perspective I've never really worked with someone before collaboratively on, on research what are some challenges what are some benefits mm -hmm. why, why is it a, th a, th a thing that you're interested in doing well I would say that there is only benefits 
I worked for many years by myself, and it's way better to work with somebody. I should uh, take that as a. I'll, I'll take that on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, I'm entering. I, I've been working in pop culture. I've been working a little bit in the Cold War, um, but uh, Catherine had a much stronger basis in childhood in in the theory and the historiography about it so that was very helpful um, the fact is that uh, it can be very lonely to have to keep writing by yourself and to keep yourself self-motivated uh, all the time and then to say have somebody say okay well let's just sit down now and we're just going to write the paper together and this is what I found this is what you found and it's just been from my perspective a win-win I think it's it's only been beneficial in terms of also the research itself because, I mean, typically when a historian does research, um, you're doing it by yourself. And then the first time that, that you get other people's take on it is usually at a conference or, you know, maybe you publish an article and you get some reviews back. And, and that's just, they're just reacting to your interpretation of the documents that you've been looking at. In this case, you know, this, this particular television show. So we've both watched the show and independently, usually, and then bring, come together to talk about what we've seen. And sometimes we've seen the same things and sometimes we've seen really different things. So it only enriches that, mm -hmm. that uh, interpretation, I think, in really good ways. Yeah. So, like two two minds, yeah, working at the same time. Mm -hmm. You're going to see different things. You're going to come up with with different perspectives and sort of half the workload, maybe as well. Is that kind of is, maybe yeah. not half, but I think, no, I, I would say so. Yeah. I think it's so. And you also, it's easier because we have such a heavy workload. It's it's easier to get it done quickly and on time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of the research, I would say we we both went in there, right? And we both went um, at different points. We each went to the film and television archives at um, the UCLA campus in um, Los Angeles, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's just a huge archive of, of film and television and uh, sitting in a in a room watching TV for eight hours a day <laughs> doesn't feel I, like work. I could do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's surprisingly tiring um, and taking very detailed notes. But we did that independently. Um, but then when we come together to actually decide what is it that we feel is important, what's the story that we're trying to tell about, about uh, Cold War childhood and, and early television, um, it's definitely a lot easier when you have two brains working on it. Hi, my name's Theo and I teach in the English department at Vancouver Island University. You're listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities on CHLY 101.7 FM Nanaimo. There's an interesting sign when you're driving towards VIU from the highway if you turn at Jingle Pot that says something about Nanaimo being a nuclear-free city. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if, if I don't know the, the background behind that. Do, do either of you have a sense of when that was put in place? Um, is it an sort of official position? I think what happened is that it was an official position from a small group. Um, I believe, I'm not sure of the years, it might have been the 80s, maybe the 70s, uh, there was a group of peace activists that were very opposed to the uh, entry of nuclear 
warships, basically, or, or ships of the American Navy that had nuclear capability into Nanus Bay, uh, which happens once a year as part of our NATO obligations. Uh, and so it was seen by a disarmament group and by a peace group as being something that they could rally around to get rid of. And I'm presuming, and I'm not sure, but I'm presuming that why Nanaimo became a nuclear-free zone is from the same group, basically. Mm -hmm. It really resonated with me as someone from New Zealand who grew up in New Zealand in the 1980s because that story sounds very familiar. We had a lot of anti-nuclear protests against particularly American ships coming into New Zealand harbors, either carrying or nuclear weapons or being nuclear powered, and and particularly their refusal to disclose whether they were or not. And there was there was a lot of social mm -hmm. movements pushing back against that to the extent that New Zealand became a nuclear-free zone and it kind of split up the – there was a um, – um, relationship between Australia, New Zealand, and the United States called ANZUS, a, a treaty, military treaty, which was broken because of our stance mm -hmm. on banning the visits of nuclear-powered or nuclear-armed ships in mm -hmm. the 1980s, uh, and also working against French nuclear tests in, um, in the yeah. Pacific as well. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, just a, a really interesting history. Yeah. I was curious about the Nanaimo uh, connection there. It's uh, it's an interesting because it's it's a very small sign, right? You almost wouldn't see it if you, but when you notice it, it's kind of immediately you kind of wonder, huh? I wonder, and it is. It has a very um, historical feel to it in the sense that it's attached to a specific historical moment, right? Mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit about why you think um, the colloquium series is an important um, thing at VIU? What's what's what is important about presenting your work? to at least part of the audience being not non-academic, perhaps, but the members of the public and, and so on? First of all, I, I'd just like to say that when we talk about the Arts and Humanities Colloquium, we're really talking about the efforts of our former history professor, Helen Brown, and uh, what she did when she started this by reaching out to every community organization she could think of and get in touch with and and build upon and it is very difficult to get people to come on a regular basis to events anywhere in, in well I think anywhere on the island but certainly anywhere um, in the Nymar in uh, at VIU and this is something that is regularly attended and very popular and it really is all hats off to her it is really a privilege to bring your research to a to a broader audience. Um, and one thing I've noticed when I speak about um, research about the past, especially when it's the fairly recent past, historically speaking, the 1950s are not that long ago, um, that people always connect with it, um, or people often connect on a personal level, right? So I, um, it would be great to have people there to, to, to reflect on what their experience with television was um, in the 1950s uh, at a time when this technology was just entering people's homes and um, and was was reshaping their the way that they use domestic space their routines um, as well as the broader childhood culture so I think having that um, public voice there those people who can who can say, well, this is, either they'll say, yes, I know exactly what you mean, or they might even say, well, that's not the way it happened to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's important too. 
part of the paradox of the war is that how do you write about Superman fighting Nazis and not winning the whole war? Like, why did we actually have to fight the war? Why can't we just send him in to use his laser beams and kill Hitler and then everybody goes home? And so they had to kind of work their way around it. But uh, the superheroes really blossomed from the war and immediately mm -hmm. after the war. Um, and also the idea of audience participation. And this, this came actually earlier, I think in the 20s and 30s. The idea that kids could be listening to radio shows and they are, uh, they are, are encouraged to buy products, whether it's Quaker Oats or whatever the product was, and get decoder rings and get all mm -hmm. kinds of things where they could be, be working with, with the, uh, the anti-spy or whatever yeah. it is, that mm -hmm. the, the superhero. And that kind of engagement directly with children was very powerful, and then it really did um, hit its, its peak in the 50s and 60s. I, I saw an ad, obviously this is not, wasn't accurate, but it was something like that where you could get something in your cereal like a decoder ring but it was atomic like it was supposedly radioactive so it, pr it probably wasn't but i think they kind of marketed it as if you know you can get your own real kind of functioning part of an atomic weapon in your, in, breakfast, in your cereal? breakfast cereal <laughs> well i don't know how much we're going to talk about this and during but what was striking when you talk about the 50s is how especially in the states how they domesticated atomic blasting Mm -hmm. uh, and when you're dealing with a place like Las Vegas, which was just outside of where the nuclear testing was done in Nevada, that people in Las Vegas would actually go on their roofs at night to watch the mushrooms go up. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, a missed atomic bomb. They had oh, a missed, I've seen yeah. her, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, yeah, and they had atomic breakfasts that you could yes. eat yep. and all the rest of this. Well, and think about the the, the hottest new piece of, of female swimwear. Bikini. Yes, the bikini. The bikini. Yes. Named after the Bikini Atoll, which yes. was the site of the American testing for the hydrogen bomb, right? Yep. And I think about that yep. every time I... <laughs> Every time I see someone in a bikini, um, yeah. But it is really fascinating that that combination of like the the technological sublime that is almost unnameable. It's so huge yeah. and devastating, with the sort of banal elements of pop culture, like naming a uh, um, a drink after you know, or there were all sorts of things like like pop songs and um, you know cocktails and. Yeah, swimsuits and, mm -hmm. and this, yeah, this kind of domesticating of it through everyday items. Yeah. This thing that is otherwise quite beyond the pale and b beyond our thinkability in, in mm -hmm. a sense. And a lot of, I mean, the the television, the entertainment industry seemed to really get on board with helping to domesticate it and to, to make it... Um, to make it n understandable to children, but also less uh, less scary in a way, which is kind of funny because, um, you know, children at this time um, in many schools would have been having drills, right? What to do if if the if the bomb goes off, uh, duck and cover, and all of that. Um, and at the same time, they could watch shows. Um, I don't want to say the D word in case we get because of copyright, but Disney, <laughs> the Disney um, program for children, they had a newsreel. They did a whole series on atomic energy, um, and they didn't mention its military uses uh, at all in the whole multi-series uh, program. It was all about the wonderful, uh, technological, efficient, uh, helpful applications that 
that uh, nuclear energy would have in the future and how they needed to take all their math and science courses very seriously so that they could be part of this great American future. You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Catherine Rollwagon and Cheryl Walsh for their conversation. Technical production by Robin Davies. Colloquium series will be back in February with Dr. Marnie Stanley in her presentation, Graphic Refugees, the Trauma of the Displaced Self. Stay tuned for more conversations with the presenters. Visit our website by going to ah.viu.ca and clicking Colloquium Series to find out more information. I'm Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening.